1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Well, hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Recovery, a podcast about transitioning out of ministry or transitioning within ministry. Basically, a podcast about vocation, a podcast about all kinds of things, a podcast that really has taken on a life of its own. Sometimes I think, Justin, at this point, we can't even say what this is a podcast about. Yes, it, it's a little bit of all of the above, for sure. Absolutely. I'm Sarah Heath, and this is uh, Justin Gentry. And we are excited to introduce to you Reverend Dr. I like to say it, Michael Bischoff, who is a dear, dear friend of mine. And we are happy to have Michael on the show. Michael has been someone who has both served in a local church, has served in college settings, has served as a, I guess you call it an executive director. What would you call you? Of Soul Leader, which is an organization founded and with the intention of really helping people within ministry live a more holistically healthy life. And Michael's also someone who's been damaged a little bit by the church. Uh, so Michael, so glad to have you here. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Justin. So good to be with both of you. Yay. So our first question we ask people is, how long have you, we say, how long did you serve? And what maybe it sounds like we are talking prison time, but how long have you been involved in ministry type things? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, mine goes way, way back. I literally was a junior high kid, seventh grade. Wow. And I remember standing in the courtyard of a church as I went through this Christian school. And I had this sense that I was being called to ministry as a junior high kid. I had wow. no idea what that meant. I, I so weird to think about, right? Like 11, 12 year old kid. And I just had this sense God wanted me to be a pastor. I had no idea what that meant. So that was a long time ago. That was in 1976, I think that I felt that and literally started taking off on a trajectory toward ministry. Ever since then, I entered full-time professional ministry in 1987, was Whoa. a pastor for 30 years in a, in a number of different locations. I was on staff at 10 different churches, pastored at eight different churches, and went through significant pain in seven of those eight churches. <laughs> You're reminding me of the people who like, my dad loves to joke around. They have a wonderful marriage, by the way, but my parents will be like, we've been married for however many years. I'll be like, and two, happier or whatever, <laughs> like whatever the thing is. Yeah, that's a lot of positions. It's a lot. It's a lot. And the last church I left is I was lead pastor until about 2015 and then stepped out of that and uh, have been doing soul leader full time. This ministry that I started in the year 2000 and have been doing that full time. It started in the year 2000, but full time since 2006. And so that's where I sort of transitioned out. And now I pretty much soul leaders, my full time gig doing this thing alongside trying to help those that are in some form of ministry, some kind of spiritual leaders, trying to help them stay in the game, 
try to not just survive, but thrive, trying to deconstruct in the best ways possible, trying to figure out where they might make their best contribution as a human right now. And I've been doing that for a long time and often with one foot in the church and one foot in parachurch. Yeah. I, so did you, you said you were in junior high. Did you grow up in a church setting? Like it feels like a really, no, no, it started in junior high. That's actually when it started. Yeah. I went to this Christian school and they kind of shared the gospel with me uh, and yeah, it started in junior high for me. Yeah. I, I went to a Christian school as well. And there was, there were a lot of those like invitations to, to, to come to Jesus in school. Like, oh, I missed math class today because I got saved. Oh, wow. You guys, that's just such a different experience than to me. They're like kid who went to public school their entire life. <laughs> I cannot imagine. The, the, but I will tell you, like in in high school, man, I loved it. I love to see you at the poll when we were going to witness to our entire school mm-hmm. in Mississippi. Guys, no one was looking to me meet Jesus and Mrs. I mean, they had met Jesus. They had an idea of Jesus. It was literally just a, we're all going. And when I think about the national Christianity, where we're going and sitting by the flagpole, praying for, I don't even remember what we're praying for, but we were seeing you at the pole for our leaders, for our churches, for, I think about the weird weird connections that we made in those spaces and places. And that wasn't a Christian school. So although I did not go to a Christian school, I would say like going to a public school in Mississippi is adjacent to going to a Christian school. Christian school school. adjacent. (laughs) (laughs) The trauma is at least equal, maybe. Michael, I'd love to hear, you mentioned, uh, and we joked, that there there was one that was good, and then there were seven that were painful. And I think that's really one of the beautiful things I think about our friendship and just knowing you so well is that there is this ability to sort of be in the tough. And how did you, can you describe some of the, what made those places painful and then what kept you in it? Because I feel like some of us are like, well, that was painful. I'm out. I clearly am not one of those people, but. No, me neither. <laughs> I still have that conversation. My wife and I are sometimes like, well, how the hell did we stay this long in this thing? But in some senses, it's been very good. So yeah, thanks for asking. The first one was my literally my first full-time ministry experience, becoming a youth pastor and getting called to a church and literally getting beat up and abused by a narcissistic pastor. I didn't even know what that was. <laughs> right. I just spoke to someone this week who was like, yeah, I like worked with a narcissistic pastor. And I thought I was unique until I met a bunch of people that work with a narcissistic <laughs> pastor. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I kind of call it the Christian leadership disease, but I didn't yeah. know that at the time, right? It, it started to dawn on me when the pastor's oldest daughter started sharing her and her husband about family issues. And I'm like, hmm, that's kind of odd. Didn't know that. And then one day I'm in the church office and we're in the workroom and the pastor says to me, Hey, Michael, it'd be fun to go like do church conferences. Well, I was brand new. He was brand new. Several of our other staff were brand new. And I said to him, hey, wouldn't it be good to hang around a while so we'd learn some things and get some expertise before we went and did conferences? And he said he laughed and he said to me, Michael, it's just fun to go tell other people what to do. Oh, I am going to go out on a limb and guess this was a white man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and so there was just a real unhealthy spirit here. This pastor ended up getting kicked out, excommunicated, church disciplined, whatever you wanted to call it. The board kicked him out. It was a big giant thing with a church split. All the rest of the staff resigned and they asked me to run the church. So I was oh. a youth pastor. <laughs> oh no. Trying to be a good youth pastor, leading my youth ministry. And now the board says, can you run the church? So like every red-blooded white American male, I'm like, yeah, I'll fix it. (laughs) And then I'll run a conference about it. (laughs) Exactly. I was still still working on my MDiv at the time. I was Mm. like in seminary and trying to figure out what a pastor was even supposed to look like. And now I'm trying to run this church and realizing how dysfunctional it had been. Because not only was that pastor kicked out, but the previous two pastors had been kind of pushed out in some way. So this was a really unhealthy church. So anyway, year and a half, I dove in. I was sort of the interim pastor, though not with that title or really the authority, trying to find some healing, try to bring some help. Year and a half, it actually did stabilize. They called a pastor, and to this day, he's still there. And this was like over 30 years later. So that person's still there. But I ended up going through eight months of clinical depression at the end of that time. And I did not know what I was feeling. I just knew I didn't want to talk to anyone. I didn't want to see anyone. I didn't want to answer the phone. I was a mess and I didn't know what to do with it. And I had come from a background that said, yeah, don't go get counseling because that's kind of like secular humanism. So don't get counseling. So I didn't get help. So I suffered for eight long months in the darkest place I had ever lived through. You know, that's one of the things I just super value about you is your willingness to share that like this affected my mental health and not only that but I wasn't allowed to say this is like affecting my mental health not because necessarily all the people around me weren't able to hold that space but because I had been brought up to believe like in the system once you were a junior higher and you got saved at school that in order to seek help you would be stepping into a different belief system Oh, yeah, totally. Well, I was sitting across the desk from a pastor one day, and the pastor said to me, I don't think it's ever justifiable for a Christian to be depressed. Uh, So now I had depression and guilt, right? Yeah. Like one, two punch. I didn't know where to go with that. And my whole system didn't provide any support or any help. So I was like, I got to get out of this situation. So literally first full-time ministry experience, I had four years on in that job, in those dual roles in that job. But I'm like, I got to get out of here. So one day I'm listening to Christian radio and I hear this advertisement come across from an organization that was like a career consulting firm. And because they were on Christian radio, I just assumed these were good people. So I signed, I I went in to visit them and I met with the president and they're like, yeah, we'll help you find a job. Just give me your credit card and pay me $2,000. And that was a lot of money back then, you know, swipe the credit card. And literally within a couple of weeks, not only did they not help me find a job, but they went bankrupt and the whole office closed up. So here I'm trying to leave, right. And recover or rev cover to be appropriate to your podcast yes, here, yes. right? From this horrible situation and my depression, trying to just go get a job and the door feels like it slams shut and I'm $2,000 in debt now trying to figure out how to get out of this one. And that was really hard. And you're in like a dark place. Like when so you're dark. in actual depression, it is so hard to see anything, even the good. So to be in that and then experience actual bad, and no one's offering you any sort of support. No, 
it was just such a dark, dark place. But something turned, and that was that um, there was a board member from that church, and uh, he didn't like me very much, and I didn't like him very much at the time, but I think he felt sorry for me. And he had just sold his business and started a foundation. So he had a lot of money, and he had started a foundation to try to do some good things. And he said, hey, Michael, do you want to come work part-time for me? He was trying to start a supportive uh, for homeless and at-risk families. He wanted to start a transitional family housing facility. He had a 15,000 square foot building and said, can you come do some research in the county for homelessness? And I'm like, I know nothing about the subject of homelessness, but I needed a job. And so I took this part-time job. You're like, or I'll be joining those run shelters. I need to figure that out. It sort of of felt like that. And so I went to work there really kind kind of kicking and screaming, but I didn't know what else to do. It was either that or go work at McDonald's or something like that, it felt like. So I did go. And within about six months, I sort of, the job grew on me a little bit. I sort of grew to love that boss. And he sort of changed his opinion of me. And I ended up working for that foundation for seven years. And it was a wonderful experience because it allowed me to heal from this first horrific ministry experience and yet still help other people. We had about 10 different ministries and it allowed me to take all the things I had just learned by going through that pain. And one of the things we did is we helped fund seminary students and pastors and church planters. So I wasn't pastoring then, but I got to sit and listen to their stories and share my story. And I started to realize that if just sharing my story of going through that eight months of clinical depression really got a captive audience. People would then go, oh, can I tell you, like, I've experienced depression or I've experienced X, Y, Z, whatever their issue was. And I realized my story of going through pain was making a real difference. That was huge. Now, your how did you end up, you know, you say clinical depression because you had actually went and got help how did you end up doing that? Where did you find the help? How did you find a counselor? Yeah, that's a good question. I didn't know how to go and I didn't find a counselor, but there was a good friend of mine that had uh, really reached out and his wife had been getting some good counseling by um, someone that um, a number of people know, a guy named Henry Cloud. Henry Cloud and John Townsend became mm-hmm. later I've on. Heard of that guy. Famous, yeah, famous authors. No one at this time knew who they were. They had pretty much just graduated from graduate school, gotten their PhDs, and they were at a local hotel across the street from the airport doing this thing that two or three or 400 people would show up, pay five bucks, and listen to some Christian shrinks for a couple of hours. Well, I figured I could go hide in that room and nobody would see me, and maybe I'd hear something helpful. So my wife and I went every night and to try to figure out what is this thing and who are these Christian counselor psychologists, and maybe they have something helpful. I was desperate and I didn't know how to get help. So my wife, the first night we went, we left the room and my wife said, so what'd you think of that? And I literally said, I think all these people are crazy. And uh, she kind of <laughs> laughed and I kind of laughed. And we went back a second week though, because my friend and his wife kept inviting us back and we wanted to hang out with them. They were starting to give us grace in a way that no one had ever modeled. And when you're going through a time like that, you need some people that are just going to hang with you 
and love you and accept you. And, and these friends were doing that. And I so appreciate it. But we went back a second week. And I remember the second week we left, my wife says, hey, what'd you think of it tonight? And I said, I, I don't think these people were so crazy. I think a really <laughs> good things in there. And that was really helpful. We went back a third week. She asked me again, leaving the third week. And she said, what'd you think? And I said, honey, I think we're crazy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's great. <laughs> then you have to change our views. We yeah. have been believing some stuff and we've been going down some roads that are extremely unhealthy. And if that doesn't change, we'll never make it. We won't survive our marriage. Our family won't survive. Nothing will if we don't change. And that started us on a long journey in a really good direction. Mm, That's I really love cool. that. I love that because there's an openness that I think you've, you know, you and I have had such a journey together as friends as your theology has shifted because you, you know, the story of even how you ended up. <laughs> so uh, spoiler alert, Michael ended up in part of his story is that he ended up coming to my church when I was a pastor <laughs> and I was still in the conceal don't feel stage. And I'll never forget sitting on a couch, in my couch, in my home. And you're like, so who are you when you're not Pastor Sarah? And I just started bawling. And I said, I don't know. Nice. nice. <laughs> and it was like that awkward, like, well, that was a lot moment. But I think you had made so many shifts that I felt comfortable sharing finally. Because I think I had a mask on for so long about, you know, trying to be what everyone else needed. I think that beginning story of you, like, being in an experience where you're like, this isn't for me. And then you're like, or these people are crazy. Well, this isn't for me that, oh, we're the crazy ones. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, you got to make some moves, right? I mean, my, so probably my deconstruction started there literally over 30 years ago when I realized, man, I was getting the shit kicked out of me going through this clinical depression. I didn't sign up for this, but I had to change my views somehow. I had to see things differently somehow. And I was so thankful that these Christian counselors were helping me do that. Now, I wasn't out of the woods yet. It was painful. But that deconstruction has gone in my life for many, many, many years. I know some people don't like that word. I really like that word because I think, yeah, take it down to the bare studs or even level it down to the foundation. And then you'll know what might need to be rebuilt. And um, that didn't happen fast. I wanted it to happen fast because the pain was so bad, but it didn't. It meant getting all new friends. It meant changing churches. For us, it meant moving. It meant new employment, new form of employment, right? Working for this foundation that I didn't really plan to work for. And yet it was used as a place of healing in my life, stepping out of ministry for a time, at least church ministry for a time and figuring out how am I going to see this stuff different? And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been a really good journey looking for new ways. And that's how I ended up at Sarah's Church because <laughs> that's great. I was going through, I went through burnout in 2017, 2018 and took a sabbatical and in the midst of that sabbatical started looking for a new kind of space to be in and one thing I realized was I couldn't be in the some of the same kind of spaces I'd been and it was really good to find this church that had a woman pastor because while I, I was supportive of women pastors I'd never been at a church with a woman lead pastor so I ended up visiting met Sarah and she pretty much wrecked my wife and I for, you know, from that point on. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's like hard to see. These to people are crazy. And I'm just <laughs> yeah, nice. Michael, I think you, you brought something up about deconstruction that I, I think is interesting, especially when it comes to pastors, because, you know, as in adolescence, you're given a structure of life and this is the way the world works. 
And I think normal human development then is a certain amount, if not complete deconstructing of that paradigm when you become an adult. When you train for ministry, though, it's interesting because you're given this structure and then immediately you're said, now go defend it. This structure is now your life. And I think there, in some ways there feels like a delayed adolescence or a delayed adulthood for pastors because you don't get that opportunity necessarily to ask those questions because you immediately go into like, all right, we're, we're repping this thing now. And, and so it, it sounds like from your story that, you, yeah, you start to see those cracks, but then it's like, okay, all my peers are, are reps for the system. All of my support network is my paycheck is tied to this. Like, where do I go? So you end up like clandestinely going to like a hotel to listen to some crazy people. Yeah. Most people, just they, to... that's not what's happening clandestinely for a yeah, lot yeah. of pastors and <laughs> hotels, um, as we just discovered. Hillsong. But you end up like sneaking around to try to find voices that will start to give resonance there. So I guess, can you maybe speak a little bit more to that process and maybe ministers that are listening to this podcast, they're like, hey, I'm feeling this. Hi, it's me. What are maybe some ways to start healthily pursuing that process? Yeah, great question, Justin. You know, for me, it was pain that propelled me, right? Eight months of clinical depression was pretty significant pain. But if, if I did success, if that first church would, you know, exploded and there was growth, I don't think I would have gone down that road. So it made me incredibly thankful for the pain. So maybe that's one word is that whatever pain your listeners are feeling, and I know the pain is huge right now because I experienced that as well in the leaders that I coach and train and consult with and mentor. And it's just greater than it's ever been right now in the days that we're living in. So one, don't run from the pain, but figure out how to cooperate with it in a healthy way, like embrace that pain and you can't do it alone. So, but I, I sense sometimes that pain can send us down some roads that make us more reactive than receptive. And so like, I'm a big believer in trying to, to lean into that. And with the right kind of resources, like good friends, good therapists, reworking our perception of things and the way we had thought about them, changing our mind, right? I think, I think that's the best definition of this word repent. Many of us have come from backgrounds where this word repent was drilled into us as it just, you know, you're in sin, repent from it. That was sort of my background. But I, I think the best definition of that word metanoia is to change your thinking about your thinking. And I needed that. I needed to be smacked upside the head in order. I never would have listened, you know, at that hotel to these Christian therapists if I hadn't been smacked upside the head and realized I had to change my thinking about the way I was thinking. So literally that I was repenting in the best possible way. Okay. Others would have said, yeah, just, you know, just, you know, you're in sin, just fix yourself. Now that wouldn't have been helpful at all. So if you're coming from a background like that, you got to get out of it. You got to get away from those people, right? Like the mm -hmm. pastor that told me it's not justifiable for a Christian to be depressed. I can't hang out in that environment anymore. I had friends that were really toxic and really unhealthy. I had to get away from them. But I had some other friends that were on a journey. They might just not, might not have been at the same place I was on a journey. So with them, I just kept sharing my story. If they could like track with that and had some grace for that, great. Maybe my story could help and encourage them. And literally my story ended up being what birthed Soul Leader, this organization that I started in the year 2000. It grew out of my story. So all that to say, something really good can come out of your pain if you allow it. All that also though, I want to validate all those emotions, all the feeling, all the anger, 
that you're feeling toward it. Because if you just shove that down and repress it, that's not going anywhere good. So you do have to work with that, cooperate with it, listen. And I think you've been told, like Justin and I have talked several times about sort of the inability to actually feel. I love that you said this idea of sort of cooperate with it because for so long we would experience things so that we could share how we came out on the other side of it. So like your pain will bring, like here's the silver lining. So you're in the midst of like the most painful moments of your life and you're trying to figure out how you can make this feel better for other people. And you're trained to do that, right? Like from the testimonies you hear in youth group or whatever it might be, like you're you're taught to always sort of have this lens that um, bypasses the actual experience of having, like you're almost like, experiencing something, but thinking about the thing that you're experiencing instead of like bypassing that feeling and that emotion. And so I'm really grateful, Michael, for your invitation for people to actually feel, because I think that's a problematic thing. It's a huge thing that a lot of us have experienced where we've been told that feelings, there's no place for feelings in this faith, which is really weird because we think about scripture, there's a lot of feelings, but somehow we created this like narrative that we're not, and especially leaders. Like I literally had a leader, like a mentor tell me one time, like people know you're sad and no one wants to follow someone who's sad. And I, and what I heard from that was like a, you know, as a woman, you're always afraid of being over emotional because that's the labels we often get. And so I thought, oh, I need to like, I I joke around that it was like my frozen period where I just went around conceal, don't feel. And I think I'm really grateful for just even that idea that like, you cannot bypass it. You have to feel whatever you're feeling and you have to be around people who let you feel what you're feeling. Because the temptation I think sometimes is just to find the people that will tell you, you're going to be okay. It's fine. Keep going, which I think is great. I think there is that need to like believe in the after, but also the people who can sit with you in the midst, right? Yeah. What I realized was the depression was my entryway into this different place of formation than I'd ever experienced. I like to call it emotional formation, right? Because this is kind of our, our, our niche paradigm that we use as soul leader, that there's these dimensions of who we are as humans. And if we don't pay attention, if they're cut off, you're not going to ever be able to live a whole life. So the depression brought me an awareness of my emotional formation that was completely undeveloped. So I I started paying attention to things like family of origin issues, why I was susceptible to depression, why I didn't have touch with my anger, uh, be in touch with that anger in a way that was healthy and such. And then to realize I couldn't work on that if I was alone in isolation. And when I left all those other friends that used to think the same way I did, that was not healthy, I had to make some new friends. And I remember it took me about six years to find some friends that understood that. And I felt like supported me. So for me, that was a relational formation. So a different area, right? We need friends and a different kind of friends in a supportive environment because I'd been pretty isolated. I thought I had friends, but they weren't the kind of friends that I needed. And then at that point, I realized, I wouldn't have said this at the time, but I was really angry at God, really pissed off at God for, cause I didn't sign up for this. Like I said, right. Nobody does, but to have that thrown in your face. Hello, I have first- signed up for the premium package and yeah, I'm concerned. Like, with- hi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm actually VIP. Thanks yeah. though. I have the armband. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a, the missionary you hear about with the terrible stories. Like no, no, I'm no, the no. pastor with all the great stories. Like, I don't know if you noticed you. I was at CU at the poll 
all four years of high school. So maybe God, if you could just I've help put me in, bypass all these. I've feelings. put in so much. My my account in heaven should not be Jewels overdrawn. Crown. <laughs> but that's what's so good about lament, right? Right. That we get an opportunity to lament, and even Scripture is full of that, right? Somewhere to from a third to a half of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, crying out to God, "Why I didn't sign up for this? It wasn't supposed to be this way. <laughs> I don't get it, God." So it's such a good place. To be able to, if you have the ability still to pick up your Bible and you want to do that and look at a place, just read Psalms of Lament for the next year, right? Yeah. Because I was so angry. I didn't know it. I had no language for it, but I had to journey through these various dimensions of formation so that something would somehow the pieces of Mr. Potato Head would get put back together, right? <laughs> it felt like my eyes had been to my ears, my legs had been all taken apart. I was a mess. It was ridiculous. And somehow if I was ever going to put that back together into something that resembled wholeness, I had to walk this journey. And so it literally became a paradigm for the way we work with leaders today. I want to ask both of you, Justin, as well, like the, this idea of not being able to be angry. I sometimes... I have recognized in my own journey since I, I left, you know, local ministry in July and I, I have never known how to be angry. There's lots of reasons culturally for that, for me, family of origin stuff. And just, I've just never, I don't know how to be angry. Anger for me is a very scary emotion. And then, so I, in some ways chose a career, I think that wouldn't allow me to be angry. There, there was no space for my anger. But the the truth of the matter is we all have anger. So it just comes out in like a different, <laughs> terrible way, right? Like it's going to come out. Do you guys feel that sense of like, I had to learn how to be angry in healthy ways? Because I didn't know how, I didn't know how to be angry. So the other day I had a conversation with someone about, uh, actually about salaries. And I was talking about how for 16 years of ministry, I was paid what was called our conference minimum. I never made above that, even though I was, you know, in some ways considered a rising star or whatever. And he looked at me and said, that's ridiculous. My starting salary was more than your like whatever. And I felt my, this thing in my body that felt so wrong and so uncomfortable and so almost devastating. And I thought, oh, Sarah, you're experiencing anger. <laughs> what have I, I mean, do you guys have that same thing or did you feel like you knew how to, it sounded like you didn't know how to be angry, Michael. Well, someone asked me one day, hey, Michael, are you an angry person? And I said, no. And then they followed up with a question. They said, how do you drive? When, when someone cuts you <laughs> off, how do you drive? And I had to get to the place where I'm like, wow, I never realized that. I'm a pretty angry driver. I'm a pretty impatient driver. And so I didn't even have language. First of all, I had to accept it. I wasn't even accepting it, right? Because anger was bad, like you said. It's not socially acceptable in an environment when you're a spiritual leader. But if you can say, okay, now I'm angry. Now you can do something with it and about it. So one, I had to accept it. And then two, I had to realize like, where is it coming from? Like, is it my personality? Is it because I had like family of origin issues that had set me up for that? Is it because I'm an Enneagram one and everything's black and white, right and wrong? And that makes me really upset when people don't do it my way. There's all these reasons. So giving it language, talking about it and bringing that into safe spaces, that helped me realize, yeah, I have anger. And then being able to, I guess the best I could say that I found it helpful is, yeah, you know, even the Bible says, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So it, it never disses anger. 
It just talks about processing it in healthy ways. So for me, that means putting it into words that work. So even my wife and I, right, if we get mad at each other, we're going to get angry. But rather than throwing things at each other, it would be putting it into words to say, I am, I am angry about this, or this is how I feel hurt using I statements. So yeah, identify it, but then put some language on it that allows you to communicate about it in ways that are productive rather than destructive. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Hmm. Anger is an interesting emotion, I think, in that <laughs> if we're going to do Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram 7, recovering from that lifestyle choice. From that lifestyle choice. So... But, but like, I can touch anger, I can express anger, and then I just move on with my day. And then it was really only until relatively recently, painfully recently, that I realized, oh, when I do that, like, that really bothers people. Whereas, like, I feel, I feel things very quickly, it passes, and I just move on. You know, I, I never, like, sit with it for a long time. And so getting comfortable with the fact that oh i'm angry and i probably need to like maybe think about why that is and sit with it for a little bit and feel that for a while and like like sarah you talk about like the injustice like feeling about pay like when i left ministry and i got my first corporate job and i i knew the benefits package and stuff but it wasn't until like i started signing up for stuff i'm like sitting at my desk signing up for like all the benefits and stuff I get for starting this corporate job and feeling so cheated. Cause I'm thinking like, I'm sitting next to someone who just graduated from college. Like we have the same job and I'm like the advantages that this person has that I did not have opportunities for because I was in ministry, like, you know, retirement, all these things, like all this stuff that, you know, they say like, you're working for the Lord. You don't need to worry about retirement. You know, like, yeah, my retirement's plan is Jesus. Like, no, that's, that's a good way to go hungry when you're old. <laughs> Or or be a pastor until you're until you drop dead. Honestly, is that I think that was the that was the plan. And so like I I remember feeling like like so much sadness and grief and anger. Like this is day one of this job. I cannot get angry right now. You know, but but you're feeling it like this. You know, I'm in my 30s and at, you know, at the time, and it was like I have missed out on so much financially and so much security and so much and and feeling that robbed feeling. Where yeah, I'm just like. Hold it together, Justin. Hold it together. Yeah, for me, it was just such a shock to have my fists. Like, you know, I talk about embodiment and have actually for a soul leader before, but my body was holding that anger. So like I'm having a conversation with people I super care about and I'm happy for them that they've been able to negotiate big salaries, but I've never been taught how to do that, nor did I want to take advantage of an already tiny church. And so I had all of these feelings all at once and I looked down and my hands are in fists and I thought, whoa, this is like, you're no longer in that space. You make money as a coach on your, your own. You, you hustle, you work for it. You're, you're doing it. You're okay. 
your bills are at least paid for this month. But I was so, I don't know the word, like angry. I was angry. And I think it's really hard to not also go to like, I feel shame for feeling angry. It's that guilt piece you talk about. So not only are you having a central feeling, you're also having guilt layered on it. And I think so many people that are transitioning ministry or like whatever it might be, leaving ministry, there's like the primary emotion you have. And then the secondary emotion is the shame of like, I shouldn't feel that. So that's my deep thought about anger, guys. Michael, how, you know, you talked a little bit about it. You talked, like kind of touched on it. You are working with a lot of churches in trauma, churches trying to react to what's going on, because in case you haven't noticed, there is this massive shift of people exiting ministry, and you're on both sides, right? You're dealing with pastors who are doing that, but you're also dealing with church communities who are like, yeah, now what? And I would love for you, and you don't have to get specific because I know this is your work, but I would love for you to talk a little bit about, you've seen churches who are doing a really crap job of that, (laughs) and then churches that are trying to do a better job of that. So I would love for you to share, you just went through a pretty devastating experience. You don't have to use details as vague as you want it to be, but how are you seeing churches reacting to this grand resignation? Is it great or grand? It's great resignation. But I think it is great, but I, I like grand. Grand. Mm-hmm. Let's just call it grand from here. I've made it more formal. Yes. <laughs> the grand resignation. Yeah. Or the horrible recogni- resignation. If we yeah. Want to the reckoning. Oh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I literally thought about that this morning. I was th- realizing that, it's, you know, the statistics right now are saying that somewhere between 38 to 51 percent of everyone in ministry could resign in the next couple of years. Right. That's huge. If you think of somewhere between a third to a half, what if a third to a half of all teachers resigned or all hospital workers resigned or all firefighters resigned? That feels pretty significant to most people, right? If you realize those people that serve and care for others, but maybe it's a little easier to throw away the reality that a third to a half of all pastors resign because pastors aren't held very highly in very high esteem compared to certain other professions today. I think that's a tough part of it too, because I know people who got in before you, Michael. So people who are like just now at retirement stage, who when they got in it, pastors were the firemen, the policemen, you know, even the little uh, toys that they had, there was always a pastor one, right? And so it was held at a different sort of esteem. Like you walked in with reverend in your room and now I feel like that's met with suspect. It was met with awe, like having doctor in front of your name. Well, part of that is because the church has gone down some roads that have really implicated it in some pretty horrendous ways. And I think that's why a lot of times the pastoral role, the pastoral profession, if you want to call it that, I don't like to think of it that way, but has, has, has gotten its, its reputation has been wrecked. So that's hard because when you find yourself in that, and then you leave that, you don't even have the same kind of respect, right? When you go to another job, like Justin's example of going to another job and feeling like, man, this college student's got one up on him uh, because of, yeah, they're just getting a head start. So that even adds to your pain, right? So, so many things the churches are doing right now is really frustrating and sad. And I don't claim to be able to 
you know, prophetically figure out what's around the next turn by no means. I mean, our team at Soul Leader spends a lot of time talking about that because we want to be helpful for whatever that looks like. But no, there are a lot of churches not doing well. But I, I want to say the thing that's maybe most helpful for churches that are, are those that are looking humbly to ask the question, what did we do wrong? Or what could have we done better? Or what can we do now? that could bring goodness and love to the people that we serve or our communities. I feel like that's the only thing that's going to be redemptive in any way for churches is are those that are asking that question. The ones that are reacting and, and like hunkering down and figuring out ways to just hold on to their beliefs and then drive them even harder, that's where the greatest unhealth is coming from. Not only, I mean, church is already highly anxious place. And one of the best things to be a healthy leader is to try to be a non-anxious presence in the midst of that anxiety. But in some places it's gotten way worse. And that's the unhealthy direction, I think, is when they're just being resistant and arrogant and prideful and it's beyond the we've always done it that way before into an almost narcissistic arrogance that says this is the only way to go yeah that yeah. is just going to crush the church's opportunity to be a light in any way in the future yeah yeah and i think i think so many churches kind of pin it on like oh the culture has changed that's why the pastor's place is diminished that's why the place that's why the church's place is diminished and, you know, I, my pushback, and I think a lot of pastors that have deconstructed and a lot of, you know, those of us on this call, our pushback would be like, no, actually, I think the church changed a lot Yeah. over the course of the last 30, 40 years. And, you know, and we could go down the list, but it's like, no, like you shifted folks, like, and, and became this place where it's like, you know, we, we enforce the doctrine over the person. You know, like, and, and that's, and that's where this, this whole depression thing comes from. Like we, the doctrine of be joyful at all times trumps the human reality that people get depressed and quite frequently. And I, Michael, I love that you're able to put dates and timelines on it. Cause I think that is good for people. Again, as an Enneagram seven, when I would feel depressed, it'd be like, this will be over in a day or two. Like, <laughs> I will shove these feelings down and I will be joyful again. But like the reality is depression doesn't just go away. No. Um, and, and I think that I, and I love that you say like, it took you six years to rebuild your friendships. I, I do think that some people get out and they're like, all right, let's make friends. And you realize the only way I know how to make friends is at church. Like, and so it is going to take a while. Yeah. By the way, the number one thing we get told is I'm ready to leave or I'm ready. You know, I, I'm, I've experienced all this stuff. But I don't know how, I don't know how to be without my community because that's where my friends are. But I also know my friends don't know me in totality. So it's just really messy. Sweet. There are people that I know that still go to very toxic churches because that's where their friends are. How, how would I be without my friends? So they'll kind of sit through a sermon that they don't like. And they'll give to a church they don't like to remain in community with these people, which seems very strange to me. But I do think that there is this like relational piece that obviously we're humans. We want to hold on to that. So like, how do you make friends as an adult, Michael? Yeah, <laughs> do, that's you, a great do you know? <laughs> it is because I mean, what you just said, Justin, is huge because it's like the person that submits to an abusive partner because yeah. it's all they 
right? Yeah. I think yeah. we do that in terms of a toxic faith system. And there are those that are studying that, right? And coming out and realizing that the level of toxicity in religious systems is way beyond what we ever imagined. And so, but yet we stay in it sometimes. Why? Because it's all we know, or that's where my friends are. Or sometimes it's because, you know, yeah, you come for the sermon and stay for the shame, right? Where did I hear that quote recently? Um, <laughs> no, it was come for the sermon. Uh, no. You said it, Sarah, right? Yeah, I did. I was, I, it was on our other podcast, Your Favorite Ants, and we said uh, people come for the shade, but they stay for the sermon. So it was the opposite. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, whatever it is, it's really hard. So you got to get to the place where you realize what it is that you're experiencing, that whether that's um, shame or literally abuse. And I think this is, this is like a really strong statement, and we could spend a whole podcast just talking about this, but the level of theological abuse that's going on in many circles right now, and I'm sure many of your listeners are right in that space, is to the place where it's, I mean, toxic is a light word for it, but it's like damning to, to, to be in that space. And I feel like I, I was susceptible, I was made susceptible to that level of theological manipulation and abuse and narcissism. Some of the other words that we've used here, you've got to get to the place where you call that out and are willing to stand and take whatever consequences it is to, to speak against it. But then again, you can't do it alone. So you ask, how do you find friends? You have to then take some risks to try to find some people that might be outside your circles. Here's where I guess I'm, I'm an idealist kind of in terms of if I'm doing wells in Enneagram one, I go to seven, right, Justin. So I become like you when you're in your good space, when I'm in my good space, I go to seven and, and that's where I hang out. So I do have a sort of a happy idealism that I'm going to find some friends somewhere, right? You might be, it's like the little kid that his, he was so optimistic and the parents like piled a bunch of horse shit on the kid's bed and just said, this kid's so optimistic, we're going to teach him a lesson. And then they walk by the room and the kid's going through all the manure going, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere, right? Just trying to find oh, it in the midst of all this bad stuff. In the that's midst such a, of all that's that. such a potent image that like really struck me. <laughs> but trying to go through it. So there are people that are there, right? We know there's enough humans on the face of the earth that you can find people, but how do you find them? One, you got to go through a lot to get there. Another one is you've got to be willing to take some risks. And here's where it gets kind of scary is you have to kind of take some of your own pain and hold it out and say, can I trust you with that? And you know what? It's going to get stepped on by some people. You can't trust them. They're going to squash you. But if you have enough and you take some chances, you will find people that go, thank you for sharing that pain. I'm so, I love you more because you shared that pain with me. So you got to take a risk and give that a shot. And I've been doing that for decades now. And I've lost a lot of friends and I've gained a few. But that's what makes it worth it when you find those few that go, thank you for being honest about that. And I think there's something incredibly healing in that kind of, again, I'm going to use this concept of relational formation, that we're literally formed by the people we're around, by the humans that we take My risks. favorite poet has a whole book about it. Anam Kara is a book by John O'Donohue about sacred friendships. Wow. Yeah, and that's I think, what that means. Yeah, there is this um, truth too, like, making friendships as an adult. I, I recently invited a friend of mine and by recently, I mean, two years ago, he started running with my run club 
And the other night we were all hanging out for St. Patrick's Day. And he looked at me and he said, these are all really good people. And I said, yeah. And he's like, like, I made friends. I was like, yeah, you did. And we laughed because as an adult, there are so few spaces where you're like, hanging out and there's something to be said about suffering together. So like long distance running is a bit of suffering together. But if you find places as an adult to do activities or, or engage in something that you're actually interested in, I think that's how you start to make friendships. And I would encourage people to look beyond just deconstructionist spaces because I, I find some people jump out of the church sphere and they jump immediately into the non not non-church sphere, but the like anti-church sphere. And that's fine and good. And you will find some friends there if you need to, if you need to do that. But it's also going to be a place of trauma and re-trauma and things like that. And so it's almost be aware like that trauma bonding is a thing. Yeah. Trauma bonding is actually a thing. And so I wonder if, if it would be helpful to also just like think about like, what are the things you like to do and then go do those things? Because we, you know, the bold move of like, I remember the first time I went to run club alone, I was just like, I don't know if I'm fast enough to hang out with these people. And also, I don't know if these people will like me. And now, you know, it's years and years and years later for me. And there's some like I joke around that they're kind of my church in some ways. They're the people that, you know, show up when a book launches for me or when a I, I just found out a guy from my run group listens to my podcast. It has nothing to do with ministry. He just thinks it's a cool podcast because I'm doing it. And I think there's just something to be said about finding friendships when you're being fully yourself. You know, like you said, like people that can hold on to that truth that you share, Michael, that like pain, like you're going to go through a lot, which is true. And that's just a human condition. It's not unique to any person, you know, I didn't sign up for this. Well, the truth is all of us signed up. That's part of the human story. But when we make it feel like it's so outside of the human narrative, that gives us a lot of pain, right? I realized that what I called a friend before my depression, for example, wasn't the kind of friend I needed because that friend, if I took a risk, said something intimate, said something very difficult that they didn't know where to place it, they judged me. So if you get judgment from a friend, that's now not safe. So you've got to find some safe friends that will hold that stuff. I needed the kind of friend I could call in the middle of the night, text in the middle of the night, and they would go, I'm there. I'm, I'm going to come and be with you. Or I literally, if I've if I got to get on a plane to go be with you, I needed that kind of friend. And that's why it took me six years to find just a few. If you can just get one of those kinds of friends I believe your your heart, your soul starts to heal because it's grace. And whether that's the grace of a human or you believe that person's modeling God's grace for you, it's like God with skin on. There are these one and other verses in scripture that many of us hold to. We need that model because God seems so intangible sometimes. I don't sense it from the divine space. But if a friend is right there modeling, I love you. I'm not going to judge you. I accept you. I'm going to encourage you. And they're doing that. That's where healing really starts to take place relationally. I love that. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing a little bit of your story and your journey. Thanks for being my friend because you were a big part of helping me begin to enter into the recovery room. Some days are better than others. Today is Sunday. Sunday always feels a little bit hard. It feels a little bit weird still for me. So it's really good, although Duke won in basketball today, and this is going to 
launch later and who knows where Duke will be at that point, but it was a good, <laughs> it was a good game basketball. Is there anything that we just want to give you one opportunity? Is there anything you want to share with our audience before, before we close out? Yeah, let me just close with this because I think a lot about this in the spaces because so many of us are in this space of church that feels so painful, ministry that feels painful, this thing that we thought was a calling that we committed our lives to, and somehow it's crumbled in a way that we never expected. And maybe it's because we focus too much on church and we didn't focus enough on the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the heavens, as it says in scripture, whatever you want to call that. Some call it kingdom today. So maybe we think in terms of friendship as kin, and it's a kingdom, this relationality of being able, because Jesus talked a lot more about kingdom of God than he did about church. And what if it was that we just weren't focused on the right place? When people say, what's the gospel? My favorite place to go is a simple verse, Mark 1.15. Because I think the gospel can be used again to sort of squash people sometimes rather than bring the freedom it was meant to bring. And Mark 1.15, Jesus says this wonderful thing. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. What that means, the kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying it's right here. It's available to you. And then he says, repent and believe in the good news. Well, there's that verse again, and that might make some of us shut down. But if you think of repent as to change your thinking, about your thinking and believe the good news or the gospel, what's the gospel? The gospel is the availability of the kingdom all around you. Jesus was saying, it's like available, it's right here. So when your church has let you down or people who call themselves Christians or claim to be followers of Jesus have let you down, what does it mean to trust what Jesus said that a different reality, the kingdom is available to you and it's available to everyone? And friendship, I love, a kingdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The people around you, the friendship, the goodness of that. And even when churches have left us down and many churches are crumbling and we all know what millennials and Gen Zs and Gen Alphas probably think Boomettes. about the church on all those things. But what if we were to think of that kind of goodness and the availability of that for every human on the face of the earth? And the church has not taught that. Uh, and no wonder people are frustrated with church. So I really believe that's the thing that I try to live into. And it keeps me living with a sense of, I don't know if hope is the right word, but it keeps me going. It keeps me knowing that there is goodness and an availability of something that while I not only didn't hear it taught in church and I as a pastor didn't always teach it in church, it can be something I live day in and day out. And it's worth living for. Oh, thank you, Michael. That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really, really super appreciate it. And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of RevCovery, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, wherever you are on your pastoral journey. Uh, we are just really grateful that you have joined us for this time. And um, again, uh, reach out to us. We have been just so appreciating all the DMs and all the messages, and mm -hmm. we are grateful for you. We'll see you. Friends, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Rev Covery. Before we jump into the reading for this week, I just want to let you know that it is finally here after lots of thinking through it and trying to figure out a good strategy and way for us to be able to gather community around this idea of 
leaving ministry, transitioning in ministry, finding new vocation and all of that stuff, we have landed on having a discord called Rev Covery Room. But in order to get access to that, we would love your support through Patreon. There will be lots of different ways that you can connect through Patreon, but Patreon will be the place where you can support the work that we're doing. Both Justin and I have other jobs, but we pay for this out of our pocket because we really believe in it, but we know that this will be a great way to support the show so that hopefully it can become uh, self-sustaining. So in order to find us on Patreon, you just go to patreon.com slash revcovery. And we know that all of your autocorrects are going to try to fix the way you spell revcovery, but you can find us there. And once you're there, you'll be able to get a link and be able to be part of the Discord Revcovery Room community. Again, thank you for all of your support, for all of the DMs. We are so excited that some of the folks that will be coming on soon are our listeners who have reached out to us and shared with us their story. If that's something that you want to do, we would love to hear from you. You can do that through our website and the link is always available. All right, friends. As I listened to Michael's story, I thought about this overall sense that Michael had to figure out how to stand still. So that made me think of a poem. And as always, at the end of the show, we like to kind of end it with the writing of others. And so this is by a poet named David Wagoner, and this poem is called Stand Still. Stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger. You must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen, it answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. Friends, I hope that you have a great week, and we look forward to seeing you again in the recovery room. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.